everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Chris Ferdinandi. Hey, hey, it's the vanilla JavaScript guy. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from cloudy, dismal Provo. Oh, and I'm the, I'm the solder JS guy. Yeah, I forget that part now. That's new. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. We have a new regular host, Christopher Beekler. Hello from beautiful Providence, Rhode Island, which is actually beautiful today, which hasn't been the case very much lately. And I'm a JS guy. I don't know that I'm the JS anything. Oh, come on. You can claim something. All right. I am the close brace guy, the JavaScript <laughs> there we go. training guy. We're going to work on your intro, Chris. Need some work. Yeah, yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll figure it out. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. We were talking, I think it was a few weeks ago, and uh, Chris Ferdinandi mentioned that he felt like current development practices, if I remember right, are ruining the the web. <laughs> Something like that. Do you do you want to expound on that? Yeah, yeah. So my my take here is that modern web development best practices are actively hurting the web. So what I mean by that is the way we build for the web today produces websites that are fundamentally not all that different from the kind of things we were building a couple of years ago. Except but, way less colorful. But our, well, yeah, I, if you want to talk about the UI, sure. But just in terms of functionality, like for a while the argument was, oh, apps, everything's interactive. But we've added all this additional layering to the way we build. And we end up with webs that fundamentally work the same way that oftentimes actually end up being slower and that are way more complicated to actually build and maintain. Um, and more so, buggy for users. So yeah, so we're simultaneously making it bad for the people who use our stuff and bad for the people who have to build it in the first place, which in my mind is just kind of madness. And so I've been starting to talk to folks about what I think are some modern best practices. In many ways, they're kind of like a reversion to the way things used to be that will, in my mind, make the web a simpler, faster, more user-friendly place. We need Joe here because uh, I was I was coming in ready to do hand-to-hand combat, but I think I mostly agree with you. Yeah, it's not... Um, I'm not going to argue that JavaScript is bad. Um, I think I, I take a, a similar perspective to... Um, um, oh my God, I'm totally drawing a blank now on Slickneck's actual name. Someone help me out here. But you know, we had a, we had a guest on a, a few episodes back who was talking about how it's not that JavaScript is bad, it's just that we use it too much or we use it inappropriately. And I think that's largely where, where I kind of fall. Yes, thank you. So sorry. Having a uh, not enough caffeine day today. But yeah, you know, so like I think about the way I learned the web uh, or learned web development five or six years ago, which was, you know, originally just HTML and CSS. And then I got into JavaScript through jQuery and then eventually kind of reverse engineered some of my jQuery stuff into vanilla JS. It was painful at the time, but it was doable to kind of self-teach yourself that stuff. And then I look at most of the articles that teach web dev today, and I have a pretty strong suspicion that if I were to try and get into it today, I would just quit and give up. Like, I don't really know how people teach themselves these days. It's just so many articles start with just followed by eight really complicated things that are not really simple for someone who's a beginner. And I don't know, I feel like I kind of came in at the sweet spot and I don't know, we can, we can dig into some specifics if you want. I, uh, you know, I have some thoughts on how we ended up here. I have some thoughts on things we can do to kind of make things better. And if you want me to kind of dig into some of the like kind of overarching problems I see, I'm happy to do that too. I think this is interesting just in the sense that 
so I, I'm going to give a little bit of background for myself and then I'll explain kind of why I was coming in to do hand-to-hand combat and then why I'm, I, I kind of backed off and was like, oh, I, I kind of agree with this. So, and this does tie back to the conversation we had about do you need a framework? Uh, I'm just going to put that out there. but And it uh, ties into our conversation about the server stuff too, I think. Yeah, and this is for me more than about just frameworks. It's it's about right. a whole plethora of things that we can unpack. But I'm sorry, Chuck, go ahead. No, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, you can complicate the back end just as easily as the front end. You know, arguably more complicate the back end, you know, depending on what you're talking about. But it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, I came up, you know, doing Ruby on Rails and the the Rails community is kind of split at this point, you know, having some of these conversations, you know, where it's it's much easier to manage the complexity on the back end than to have the complexity on both ends, if if you understand what I'm saying. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, because a lot of the, the logic has to exist on the back end and you can't get around that where mm-hmm. you don't have to put it necessarily on the front end. And yeah. the other thing is, is that, you know, just looking at this, a lot of times, so I'm working on a couple of uh, apps just for fun or, you know, for the podcasts. And I've done it just kind of the generic Rails way where we have um, Stimulus, which is a kind of a smallish framework, I guess, if you want to make it into a framework. Is that one? That's the one from the Basecamp guys, right? Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, we kind of have those things running in the in the app. And so it's it's really, really simple. It's almost the jQuery approach, mm-hmm. you know, where you, you sprinkle it in where you need it. And you know, it works really well and it keeps it really simple for us to build. And yeah, I don't feel like the user is suffering at all from a user experience where you click a link and it reloads the page. Anyway, it's kind of interesting. At the same time, I mean, it is... I do talk to people where it seems like there is enough logic that needs to be encapsulated in the front end to where a framework telling you where to put it would be nice. So I, I kind of agree with you. I think I think people reach maybe for the spa option too often, but I don't know if I can make that into a universal statement. I think I think it happens more often than it should, but I don't know if I could say that it's happening all the time. My big kind of overarching umbrella here is we we spend a lot of time, and not necessarily the folks on this call, but just as an industry right now, like we spend a lot of time breaking things that the browser gives you out of the box with things we've done with JavaScript and then recreating those things again in JavaScript. You mentioned like the, you know, the spa option or single page apps. And I look at how with those, we, we break the forward and back button in the browser. We break kind of the out of the box routing that a hard URL change and page reload will give you. And then we recreate that in JavaScript. And now we've added a whole bunch of more like additional stuff we have to write and maintain or rely on some third party stuff for. And we do it in a more fragile way where there's more stuff that can go wrong. Um, It adds additional bloat to the page, which possibly slows down rendering. And I honestly feel like the gains you get from that approach are um, like, I understand the argument here, like avoiding a full page refresh means that things load faster, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. I've built a ton of multi-page apps that do hard page reloads with statically served HTML. And like, I've taken videos of them. They feel instantaneous. My users don't know they're not on a single page app. So I just see, like, maybe, maybe Facebook can get it right. I don't know. Like, I, I would say that... <laughs> the pinnacle of great UI, Facebook. <laughs> but, no, let, let, like, maybe Facebook, Facebook... I'm sorry. But maybe Facebook can get it right, and that, like, when I visit Facebook and I, you know, read someone's comment, I don't commonly, like, curse, like, oh, I can't read this comment. Mm-hmm. But you, whoever you are listening, you really can't. You're going to get it wrong. <laughs> Your site's going to suck and it's going to be slow and you're going to use service workers incorrectly in a way that the caching screwed up and gives user bad data when they should get good data and a refresh would have done just fine. And your usage of React is going to be way overcomplicated and weigh your simple blog page down by mm-hmm. 600 times what it would be otherwise and make it what? so that search results don't show up correctly. Like, I think there's a hugely important thing to note, which is that they run on the same platform, but websites and web apps aren't necessarily really the same thing. And like a blog is a site more than it is an app. Or we would hope. We would hope, right. And then in addition, you have smaller scale web apps and then you have large scale web apps like something like Facebook. When you're running at an enterprise level or when you're making a large scale app, 
frameworks start to be a lot more logical because they solve problems at that scale. And, but but and notice React for a blog. I appreciate you making that distinction too, because uh, and AJ, I know you're about to say something, but I wanted to chime in quick and just say like I've seen so many people like they're pulling in Vue or something like that and. Like they don't even have a backend. Like you don't need view. <laughs> in my opinion, you don't need a framework if you like. You're not even like making calls over HTTPS. Like you just don't. Right. I I I work in React all day long uh, for my contract work, but my actual website is entirely HTML, CSS, and a little bit of vanilla JavaScript because Hell it's a yeah. content site. It just yeah. I mean, I I guess content. like. I should clarify, like, yeah, you have to make requests for the for that stuff, but you're not like you're not calling an API. No, I guess my question is for uh, uh, Christopher. I'm going to start making that distinction, Chris and Christopher. Uh oh, who? Which one's Christopher? I'll I'll be Christopher. That's fine. Oh, whew, thank God, that's my in trouble name. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I'm a little bit curious. Then, I mean, what are the advantages then once you get to kind of that enterprise scale? Is it the process that that you used to build the apps that the framework kind of leads you along for or are there technical reasons and considerations for you wanting to use react at that scale or at that level one of the things i found with react uh, at at larger scales is that quite a bit of the sort of auto magic that happens in the background is really really useful uh, because you don't have to recreate that wheel in the past, I've worked on various various dashboards and that kind of thing. And if you're trying to do them all with vanilla JS or uh, way back in the day with jQuery, you end up writing hundreds or thousands of lines of code for catching button clicks on the page and that kind of stuff. Once you have a more component-based approach to building out your apps, a lot of that cruft tends to go away because the framework is handling it for you. Um, I also think it's a little bit better for larger teams where you have sort of a very specific setup in terms of this is how we're going to manage our components. This is how we're going to organize our containers and everything else. Now, I have heard, and this is an extremely fair complaint, that every single React team has a completely different approach to how they want to do that. So what's the point? And that's I, I don't necessarily have a good answer for that, except that if you establish it early and the team's on board with it, it can be really easy to work in. Yeah, so the winding up, Chris, but I want to clarify one more thing first. Oh, go ahead. And that is okay. So you're you're talking about these different advantages that you're getting from something like React, or it could be Angular or Vue or something else completely. Sure. But uh, how does that then answer the point that Chris brought up in the first place, where it it adds some complexity to the app, it adds some overhead to the app, and you might be able to get away with still just working off of a server rendered website. My experience is, is that as the app gets larger, it does, it, frankly, it does have speed increases. Uh, I agree with Chris that on, on smaller scale sites, you can do standard HTTP loads and it's perfectly fast. Uh, when you start hitting larger data sets and that kind of thing, it can really help with speed increase and it can really help with render uh, increasing, render speed increasing. When you're dealing with large tables full of data and that kind of stuff, it can become problematic to just be working with vanilla js with no shadow dom and that kind of thing in addition i suppose I, it's a little hard to express but i've i've found that it's easier for me to pick up other developers code and look at it and understand immediately what's happening if i'm working in the sort of react component model uh or angular uh which i've worked with in the past where things are a little bit more defined and you're dealing with less custom custom code and custom functionality all right chris go for it I actually forget what I was going to say. So, oh, yeah. Well, so actually, I guess, yeah, along the kind of the thing around code being, um, you know, like that, that structure piece, that's a common argument I get is this like it enforces structure, it enforces structure. Um, seems to be a really kind of big draw for a lot of folks around, um, like around gravitating towards frameworks. But, yeah, and on bigger teams, it, it does help. I'm sure it does, but like, Within any particular framework, you can also structure things a bunch of different ways, and people often do. And um, to me, it it feels like one of those things that, like, what you're really um, like the real problem is is just people not not having someone who like 
specifies those norms in the first place. Like I, 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 I'm trying to dig up the tweet. Just the other day, I saw someone complaining about how like they're trying to figure out how to do something in React and every article they read recommends a different way to approach the same problem. There seems to be no consensus. Um, so it seems like at the end of the day, someone's making those choices anyways. And it so feels maybe a little disingenuous to say that. I'm going to give a, a counter argument to what you're saying here. Sure. Which is the example of AppleScript versus Perl. So Perl being the canonical write-only language. Anyone can figure out how to write some Perl. Every time I hear that, it makes me laugh. No one can figure out how to read it. Whereas <laughs> AppleScript, anyone looking at AppleScript can tell exactly what it does. Like you can take a grade schooler and ask them to read AppleScript and they will tell you what it does. No one can figure out how to write it. And I think that just because it's, there, there's a, an asymmetry where there's many different ways to do something and it's difficult to figure out how to do it doesn't mean that it's difficult to understand it once somebody has already made the decision. Not that I'm in support of React, just that I want to give a, a counterpoint to what, what you're claiming there. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really am frustrated by how reasonably this conversation is going. Um, <laughs> that is fair. We can bring now, in politics and then start screaming at each other. Right? That would be way you more know, fun. Trump uses React, and that's why you should too. <laughs> All right, that's about as far as I know about that one. Yeah, oh, we're, we're going to shut this down right now. This is going to go bad. This is going to go south real fast. Oh, wait, I thought you guys wanted to Anyway, so, so the, the other thing I was going to say is that, first of all, notice that, you know, the big companies don't use frameworks. Facebook, Google, et cetera. They write them. I mean, they do use them, but they they have developed code for years and years for certain styles of programming that they like and find beneficial. Mm -hmm. And then they export that to the world. But, but hold on one more second. Mm -hmm. So one thing I'd like to propose, I agree with you, AJ, by the way, is, is that before you go reaching for a framework that solves someone else's problem, I identify your own problem. And I think the litmus test for that mm -hmm. should be, look at the kilobyte size of the framework that you're considering using. And until your code base is approaching at least like at least 50%, hopefully a hundred percent of that size, figure out what it is you're doing and select the framework afterwards. And if you create a single app that never actually needs updates, well, now you've got something simple. Maybe you learned along the way and you don't have an extra 60 to 600 kilobytes of code hanging off your... In the interest of this not being another framework or not conversation, though, I, I think this is bigger than just frameworks. Like I look at things like CSS in JavaScript, for example, um, or CSS in JS, you know, as kind of a... A common thing here, um, and uh, that one I will admit I still don't understand. No, well, so like Nicholas Gallagher, uh, former head of Twitter engineering, shared some data on Twitter about kind of Twitter's move away from their legacy code base to CSS and JavaScript, and uh, the stats he shared with their their legacy site downloaded 630 kilobytes of CSS, whereas their progressive web app that kind of generates this stuff on the fly through CSS and JS and literally inlines everything, loaded just 30 kilobytes of CSS, which is like a huge, huge improvement. But you don't need a JavaScript-based solution to get those same results. Like 630 kilobytes of CSS is absurd for the kind of UI that Twitter has. Like you can, you can get down to 30 kilobytes just with better CSS architecture. And I'm not trying to like insult him or her, his team, but like I think one of the bigger problems is you often have people who are not CSS experts writing CSS. And so they just think the same way that if you had someone who's not a JavaScript expert writing JavaScript, you're going to look at their code and be like, this is a hot spaghetti mess. Like, you know what I mean? Like a lot of the problems that we're just, we're throwing code at people problems rather than upskilling our people. So what I'm hearing you say is the article could have been, been rewritten as we refactored our CSS and now it's only 30 kilobytes. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, the, the CSS they spit out is... Um, so it's like, it's not human, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's minified would be the best way to describe it. But so you end up with all these classes on your elements, like um, XZ112, you know, and like, just like weird stuff like that. And they kind of change dynamically and in real time. And so I constantly have these issues where like, I'll toggle from night mode to dark mode and some of the CSS will update, but some of it won't. So like, 
certain text remains white on a white background and I can't read it. And like, you know, just like a lot of this stuff, it feels like not only have you made it more complicated, you've also made it more fragile and buggy. Less accessible. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing just, um, I don't know. I feel like we're just, we're making this too hard. I have some ideas on why we're making it too hard. The other issue that, that this doesn't really, or we haven't really talked about yet is the gatekeeping that happens from using these approaches. So there's an argument that, you know, these tools let developers move faster and because they can move faster, they can iterate more and deliver better experiences. Alex Russell talks about this in this really great article he wrote last year called the developer experience bait and switch. But, um, that seems to be true for just a subset of people. So if you're a JavaScript developer who's comfortable with the tools that are being used, then sure, maybe for you, it is a little bit faster to do some of this stuff, but it's also really alienating or um, blocking. It makes, it makes working on the code base less accessible for junior developers, for people whose competencies are more in things like HTML or CSS and not JavaScript, which are very important parts of the stack. And like a really competent CSS developer can run circles around me with some of the stuff they can do with, with CSS. Like you need those folks on the team and putting in place technology that stops them from doing their best work is just really not ideal. You know, I, I want to use bad words, but I'm not going to, cause this is a, this is a family podcast, you know? So there's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot about the way that we build today that it's just not, just doesn't make sense for me responses. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I do appreciate you bringing that up about it being, you know, alienating. I don't... Mm. Like, there's a big debate right now about, like, um, I shouldn't say right now. It was, like, a couple months ago. But, you know, there was a big thing around, like, whether or not CSS developers are as valuable as JavaScript developers. And I just... Like, they are. But a lot of the way we approach development and the tooling that we use implies that they're not. The way we compensate developers implies that they're not. This has been a thing for quite a while. It's uh, even before you go back to, we've now split up front-end development, like, oh, there's front-end programming and there's, there's front-end <laughs> scripting. But right. there was design versus code before that. There was, mm-hmm. you know, and, and design has always traditionally been undervalued, in my opinion, especially because it's, it's something that the actual user has to work with. Uh, I can't tell you how many interfaces I've worked with over the course of my life that clearly have had very little uh, UX design thought mm-hmm. put into them and having a good UX designer is absolutely priceless. It completely changes how accessible your application is in terms of uh, not necessarily in terms of disability accessibility, but just overall accessibility to human beings. And then additionally, most good UX designers are also really getting into disability UX so that their websites can be as accessible as possible to people who are blind, people who, uh, you know, whatever impairment is preventing them from experiencing the the web in a certain way. So I don't think this is a new thing. I think it's very interesting that it's now it's just uh, uh, we're complaining about like, oh, we don't need CSS anymore. We can do it all in programming. So CSS developers aren't as valuable as as programmers. But good CSS developers, you've pointed out, could probably have a crew of them could probably have taken Twitter's CSS issues and fixed them without having to do CSS and JS. I've run into the same exact thing you're talking about, Chris, with... um, CSS classes that are, if you're looking at the HTML or if you're using the the console or the the element inspector or whatever, you can't figure out what's going on because there's every element has a hundred classes attached to it and they're all randomly generated names. So it becomes much more difficult to follow the trail. Mm-hmm. One thing that I'm curious about with this, then you know, because you also brought up the issue of it allows developers to move faster, and I think to a certain degree, you you kind of yeah, you build this system so that you can make assumptions. And then you can move faster. But yeah, onboarding somebody into some of that mess is really hard because they've never seen anything like it before. And I'm, I'm curious, again, you keep alluding to the fact, Chris, that it's masking some organizational issues or masking some other people issues. Mm-hmm. Do, do you find that that is almost always the case? Yeah, you know, part of the part of the unspoken thing here about wanting to do more faster is like everybody wants senior level development and they want to pay junior level rights rates for it right so you understaff you or they want senior level people but they don't know what that means that means that Mm -hmm. they're integrate easily into the team but they have the barriers that you're talking about and so nobody's actually good enough yeah you don't want to invest in growing your junior developers into like skilled people or like 
there's a ton of different issues that could possibly be underlying these decisions, but I actually think it's a more deep cultural thing. Like for me, a lot of the the reason why we ended up here is because of kind of the the front end history of not really being where serious development happens. You know, I, I think about how kind of historically the real like serious development with like real developers happened on servers and the front end was kind of this play thing where people would build like GeoCities websites and... Um, Finally, somebody said it. You know, like, uh, like I actually went digging through some of the GeoCities archives a couple of months ago just for fun and you find all sorts of cool things, right? Like, like Jesse's skiing page or like custom Doom level design, like just all like these really cool artifacts from the 90s when this was just this like this play thing. And today the web is a like a serious platform where serious work happens we can run all sorts of like amazing full applications and do rich video editing and photo, just do all sorts of amazing stuff. But um, I feel like there's still kind of this whole like, like chip on your shoulder almost where like in an effort to be taken seriously, we've thrown all of the like the stuff that we associate with the back end at the front end. So, you know, like more, more tooling and more process and, well, if these conventions make sense on a server, then they also make sense in the client. But the backend is a very different beast. The, the server has this level of control that you don't have in the client in terms of the operating system, the amount of storage, the RAM, the bandwidth, what runs when. And browsers are just such a hot mess. Like you don't have any control over the bandwidth the user has, how powerful their device is, whether or not your files actually even download and run. There's just so much that can go wrong and applying those conventions to the front end makes no sense. But that's what we do because, you know, it just because of, in my opinion, because of these weird kind of historical reasons. I so. also think, I wonder, um, now this isn't necessarily the case across the board, but for some of the like quote unquote haters out there, because I have spoken with back end developers, like platform developers, back end, whatever you want to call it, people more on the infrastructure side of things who literally have chosen to go that route to avoid all of these things you're talking about. And so I wonder if some of the criticism comes from a place of actually insecurity. Mm, Yeah, I could. um... I mean, maybe, okay, maybe insecurity is not the right word, but um, like lack of experience in all of these things that we're talking about, like maybe it comes from a place of fear. Yeah, I yeah, I also know some backend developers who moved over into like quote unquote full stack, which I also think is a myth and we can talk about that in another episode. But like one of the big things they complain about is that unpredictability. And so I think what you also see is like I know a lot of my my backend friends who moved to the front end really like, especially people who come from bet.net backgrounds, seem to really like Angular because it uses a lot of similar conventions from what I understand and enforces a level of control that they get in the back end onto the front, or at least that's kind of the mythos around it. You can debate whether or not it actually does, but, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's probably a part of it too, is you've got these differing, differing kind of skill sets that, that seem to clash in some ways. And that's not to say backend developers can't migrate to the front or vice versa or that they shouldn't, but just you need to be realistic about the fact that the environments are different in a lot of meaningful and significant ways. So I, I have an alternate theory. Oh, sorry, Christopher, did you want to say something? Because you haven't said much. I'd let you speak. Uh, sure. I was just going to say that I think, uh, you know, it is very possible to make uh, the migration between front end and back end as a developer, but it's a, it's a lengthy process. It's one that I've been slowly but surely doing for at least the last 10 years and probably more than that. And finding somebody who is really, really good at all of those aspects is... I would say almost impossible. Um, if you do find one, they're a real rock star and you should hang on to them because getting somebody who is equally adept at writing really spectacular CSS and writing really spectacular API code, is that's, that's a tough find. Can I chime in here? Because you're saying that you basically you know, started making the transition from back end to front end over the last maybe 10 years. But if you go back another 10 years, I mean that that's when a lot of the backend languages for for a lot of the web apps actually existed. So for half of the life of of modern web applications, 
you've been transitioning from back end to front end. I mean, none of this stuff is old. None of this stuff is 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 set in stone, right? We're we're still figuring out crap on the back end, let alone the front end. Absolutely. So, can I uh, bring us back around to debate? Seems yes. Like a good idea. Vigorously, please. Okay. So now, like, what I'm well, I'm I'm jumping in way late here. I have a pathological need. Anytime somebody uses the word UX when they're describing UI, I just have to say. Hard stop. Those are not related skills. They look related, but they're not, just someone doing something in CSS. They might, on an off chance, happen to also have some sort of experience in UX. They probably don't. So that that's that's a completely separate skill. But that's, yeah, I didn't want to get pedantic about it. I'm I'm thinking about. I I know what you that, mean. I was I was thinking the same thing, which is that that, that is an. Oh, okay. sorry. Go ahead, Christopher. I was just going to say that's an, an extremely fair point. I'm the one who used the term, so I'll I'll own up to it. I am very aware that UX designers and UI, UI designers are are completely separate disciplines and uh, often don't even really overlap that much. I just meant that in general, if you are paying attention, it, the, the closer to the design side you work on the front end, the more likely you are, I think, to at least be familiar with those concepts. Well, that's that's not even so. What, what, I, I was I was going to use that though. Because as much as it, and we might want to say, well, you know, everybody deserves 15 minutes on the swing at the playground and, you know, we all should get the same pay and stuff like that. There's some market demand stuff that I think is applicable. You cannot build something that is uh, functional in CSS. And so programming, even at its, in its ugliest form, can be useful even if it's not... What you're really saying is that CSS isn't programming, and I vehemently disagree with you and will fight you to the grave over this one. Uh, It is not Turing complete. That's the only argument that I have to make there. Turing. (laughs) Alan Um, Turing was a turd. So useful versus usable. that's, That's a thing. And back to that, the market... So if you think about it, like back before, programming wasn't cool, right? Like... It wasn't something that, you know, you had pictures of hipsters and, and grandpa clothes and like weird sneakers, you know, being the symbol of a programmer. It was the neckbeards and the dark, dingy basement. It was something that was like less desirable, that wasn't understood, that wasn't sexy. And so I, I think back in those dark times, you know, that, that were lasting up through the 90s, programming as such was something that you didn't get into because it was cool and you were going to make a million dollars. It was something you got into because you had some sort of either interest or talent or both in particular. And the market grew to understand that programming was important. And not everybody needs to be the same level of programmer to deliver the value that a business needs to thrive. And businesses typically make their money um, in one of two ways, off of the poorest customer or off of the richest customer, and sometimes both simultaneously. So when we think Walmart, it's a company that we, we typically kind of associate with making money off of the poorest customer, the value customer. When you think of Apple, you think of it as making money off of the, the richest customer. Like those stereotypes may not hold true, but that's kind of like something that I think culturally we have in our minds. And when you look at web apps, you know, the richest people, they live in the cities. They maybe do more shopping. Like I, I don't really know. I, maybe I'm just blowing bubbles here. And they have faster internet and they have better devices. So the richest people that are the most profitable for many of these, these businesses that are actually going to be able to turn into customers that click on ads or customers that do things, I would imagine without having done any formal study, I would imagine that the richest customers that are the most capable of enduring the worst experiences and the most capable of bringing profit to the business don't care that a website sucks. <laughs> yeah, no, hard disagree. Also, I, please, um, if we're going to be pedantic please. about stuff, hold on. You cannot claim that people who live in the city just inherently have better internet because many major cities are beacons of terrible internet because of legacy yeah, yeah, yeah. infrastructure that can't work on. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and yeah, like, and there's obviously like, there's the, the poorest of the poor live in the cities as well. So, but AJ, what you just said was that people who spend that kind of money don't care about bad user experiences. Maybe that's well, not what you meant, but that's what you said. Well, in, in a, in, in a way, like, because if my computer is like an awesome rocking computer and I don't, and I've got awesome rocking internet, I don't notice like me personally, right. Me personally, unless I'm visiting my parents that are actually more well off than I am, I don't notice how terrible a website is most of the time. If I go to my parents' house and I'm using their internet, oh man, I notice when it's making 200 requests. But sitting here at my nice little uh, uh, suburban internet connection, like I load a page and it has, you know, a request to 200 different CDNs, like I might notice. I definitely notice more of the user experience stuff than I probably notice like code quality stuff. I, I, I notice the performance stuff more when I'm using my phone, even on my home internet, which I pay for 100, 100 internet. So it's fast. But with whenever I load any website on my phone, especially if I'm not using an ad blocking browser, it gets ridiculous very fast. I notice it on my desktop, but not as much. I will agree with you. It's usually everything's pretty, pretty quick there. So what's the argument here, AJ, that CSS doesn't matter because you can have a site that is literally just completely bare and hideous, but as long as you can click add to cart, it doesn't matter. Well, there's two arguments there. Ooh, uh, sign me up. The first one was <laughs> that I don't believe that the market values CSS as highly because CSS is not as essential to perform a novel function that can be rewarded with uh, purchase. And the other argument is that the people that are the, I, I imagine the people that are the predominant purchasers on the internet probably on average have better experiences because of where they've spent money in other areas of their lives or the circumstances of their wealth, if we want to say it that way, um, such that the people that are most affected, which could even be the majority of people, are not the people that are necessarily the target. So I'm not making an argument as to whether this is morally good or or not good. It's certainly like I prefer just from a craftsman perspective, and I might be a crappy craftsman in comparison to some other people based on, you know, whatever metric you pick, right? But like, I like the idea of something being leaner and cleaner, even when it's not necessarily more functional that way or has more deliberate, immediate, recognizable business value that way. Okay. But, but I certainly do believe that there's, you can 10X your, your I, I'd certainly believe you can 10X your, your business growth by creating a product that's 10X better. And sometimes it's like with Apple, you know, like their hardware, their RAM, their, you know, all the stuff that's on the CPU board, the PCB is just junk, right? I mean, it's, it's stuff you could get anywhere. Any, any other computer is going to be better, but it's all of the pieces that aren't on the PCB that are the 10 X experience. That's just way better. So they've been able to do kind of a crappier job in some respects on the PCB in terms of the value that the PCB delivers to deliver more value in every other aspect of the experience of the device. Not to say that I think their PCBs are crap because they also do some marvelous stuff on there, but the result doesn't deliver as much value per like watt of energy for, you know, output produced for playing Skyrim or whatever. Mm -hmm. Was that too reasonable? That didn't spark any controversy? That just ended the show. Boom, done. And I mean, I don't know. You went off in a lot of different directions, AJ. I also tend to like more Spartan CSS experiences. I just, um, it feels a little tangential to what we're actually here to talk about. So I didn't want to like, like we could probably have a whole episode on whether or not CSS is, is as valuable as JavaScript is, but Did that's you, not what we're here to talk about today. I wasn't talking about CSS. <laughs> <sighs> I don't know, man. <laughs> Went off on like some weird tangent about Apple and hardware and... I'm going to have to go listen to it again. <laughs> did, this year, like, did, did that not make sense to anybody that I just... I just Dude, the like... level of detail you went into, I, I got lost in the weeds somewhere. I'm sorry. I will say with like all of the innovation that's happening in the CSS space, like with Houdini and stuff like that, I do feel like it opens up the doors for CSS for people who 
I mean, because naturally, I mean, some people just kind of gravitate towards writing, or I should say, like, because CSS is, is, is not a programming language. It's a markup language. Um, and so some people naturally gravitate more towards programming, per se. Not to say one is, like, better than the other, but for people who are more interested in the programming side of things, um, but they also are interested in CSS, like there's Houdini and stuff like that. So, you know, that might be interesting for folks. Yeah. One thing that I, I, wa- I kind of want to hit on is, you know, we, mm-hmm. we've kind of talked around some of the issues that Chris sees and we've, we've talked about maybe some of the alternative viewpoints with some of the frameworks or, you know, whether you fully adopt or partially adopt a framework. Well, what I'm curious about, Chris, is what do you see as the solutions to these problems that current web development practices create? Let me walk you through my seven-step program, Chuck. So, <laughs> um, it's not a twelve-step program; just seven it's, steps. It's not it's all you need. Seven steps, seven-minute apps. First, so you have a problem. There are, I think, about seven, seven different things. But like, so one of the big ones is um, for me, it's it's using less JavaScript and more HTML and CSS. And Amy, you and I have riffed about this before, but there's like there's a lot of things for which we turn to JavaScript when there are oh, yeah. CSS-based solutions that are actually more performant and easier to implement. And um, easier to maintain because you don't have to write tests for them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is where, you know, JavaScript developers often not knowing CSS or knowing CSS well is a liability um, and where the value really of is. a really competent CSS developer can be incredibly valuable. It can make your code more stable, as you said, easier to maintain. Like, that's worth a lot of money. And I would just like, I don't know, I would challenge anybody if if somebody is calling themselves like senior or something like that and they have this attitude towards CSS, like, I don't know, can you really be senior and not be humble? Like, yeah, or like not fully embrace like the technology of the stack in which you work, you yeah, know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, can you, you can definitely do that. I know plenty of people that do that. It's definitely possible. <laughs> Anyways, I interrupted. I'll let you finish. Oh, no, no, it's, it's quite all right. Um, I also would love to see people leaning more heavily on what the browser gives you out of the box. We spend a lot of time these days breaking native browser features and then re-implementing them poorly with JavaScript. You know, we have plenty of native elements for which we use plugins, plenty of native methods for handling things that we use like libraries and other tools for, we've kind of talked about those a fair bit. You know, one of the other things that kind of got lost a little bit in this conversation, that's probably more of like a framework versus not argument, but native JavaScript these days is very, very powerful in large part because it's it's borrowed heavily from first jQuery and n- more recently some of the conventions of JavaScript frameworks. And so with that in mind, when you do use JavaScript, leaning on those native conventions and then using things like polyfills to push that support further back. Uh, Because it's one of the other big things I hear about, like, you know, frameworks and other tools is it smoothed out browser support. But you can do that relatively painlessly these days with with things like polyfills as well. And uh, services like polyfill.io handle that automatically for you so you don't even have to think about it. One of the things about CSS in JS is it it spits out a form of CSS that and yeah, I mentioned kind of it's got these absurd class names that make no sense. But one of the big things about how it works under the hood is when you have multiple components that share similar styles, CSS and JavaScript, rather than styling an individual component, breaks each of those properties out into its own class and applies that to each of the elements that need it. But there was already a mechanism in place for doing that called object-oriented CSS or OOCSS. It was created by uh, Nicole Sullivan Stubbernella, like, six, seven years ago now. And it allows you to do the same thing, but authored in easy to read, intelligible class name based CSS um, without the overhead that you get with JavaScript. And so I really encourage people, if you're not familiar with that technique, to look into it because it solves a lot of the problems that CSS and JavaScript is trying to without kind of the gatekeeping and overhead that it entails. I would love to see a resurgence of Static HTML, I love the rise of static site generators like um, like 11D and Hugo and Jekyll, and I want to see more of that um, because it ultimately makes the web faster. Um, Amen. Yeah, and then for me, the last thing is really just, AJ, this is, you, you really hammered this point home, but avoiding dependencies whenever you can. So, you know, you kind of mentioned that 50% rule where like a lot of people turn to 
frameworks because they, or other tools because they solve their problem more quickly, but they also come with just a whole bunch of stuff that you don't really need. Um, I saw this video recently that talked about how like the thing about frameworks is that you don't just inherit a solution for your problem. You inherit solutions for all these other problems you don't have and all these weird bug fixes and edge cases for things that don't apply to you. You know, like writing more of your own code, choosing leaner, more narrowly focused tools when you do need to look at third-party stuff is going to make things both simpler for you in the long run and that you can kind of swap out parts without breaking the whole ecosystem and um, also produce a faster end experience for your users. One of my favorite things that I look for these days when contemplating node modules or anything else is dependency-free or as few dependencies as possible. So I know what I'm getting from that module is just from that module and I'm not inheriting dozens of other, like you said, edge cases Mm -hmm. that I'm not worried about. For sure. I've started using the phrase um, developer dinosaur. Like in many ways, I'm encouraging us to start building websites more like we did in you know, five to retro 10 years JS. ago. Retro yeah, JS. Yeah, exactly. That's but, our new name. It's not Vanilla JS. It's Retro JS. I'm, I'm going to stick with Vanilla JS, but, <laughs> but I, like, I like the idea of embracing some of the things about the past that worked, but also sprinkling in new technology when they make sense. So like, look at static HTML files. Awesome, super fast, great for performance, but changing like a navigation menu back in, 2005 on a static HTML site was a huge pain if you had more than like three pages. Static site generators make that really trivial to do and give you some of the benefits you would get from a database-driven site, but without any of the like the overhead or performance hit for your users that like a WordPress-driven site might suffer from. So it's really like the best of both worlds. Those are the kinds of tools that I'd love to see us using more of and less of these kind of monolith JavaScript solutions. Chris, real quick, and this is probably something that we could do an entire episode on, but you mentioned early on in this podcast that you don't know how people get into this at this point. Like, how do you start learning? Other than closebrace.com, the premier <laughs> resource for yes, React-based you. training. Uh, hey, I do, I do a bunch of JS also. But yeah, I think it would be good to talk a little bit about like, how do you get involved if you if you want to take a leaner approach to the web and this is obviously an opportunity for you to talk about your own work but i think there are others out there who are espousing a similar viewpoint and i'm just curious like if people are interested in learning how to do this stuff without having to spin up webpack and babble and everything else where do they go oh that feels like way too much of an opportunity for me to just shamelessly promote all of my things so <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to decline to to necessarily do that. But I think I think like all things, it's it's I'm actually going to reframe the question. One of the big things that I get asked is like, do companies actually build this way? Like one of the biggest pieces of pushback I get when I talk about this is that no one actually builds this way anymore. And like that would make you unemployable. So over at vanillajslist.com, I've started compiling companies that do in fact build for the web this way. And they include among them GitHub, Netflix. Marks and Spencer, a big e-commerce retailer over in England. The front-end master's website is now authored entirely in HTML, CSS, and vanilla JavaScript, and a handful of others. So yeah, I will shamelessly promote my own stuff in the pics later. But um, there are a handful of other folks, even honestly, like Wes Boss, who's like a quasi-competitor of mine, but like like a, a co-champion of this stuff. His JavaScript uh, 30 course is really, really good. And he's working on another vanilla JS course right now that um, should also be awesome if you're a fan of his teaching style. Did you just call another educator a competitor? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're frenemies. No, I'm just kidding. Wes, Wes is awesome. <laughs> but um, no, Wes, Wes, Wes is a really cool Sharp dude. objects been... away from Chris. Honestly, Remember, you can either choose the vanilla JS guy or you can choose the others, but... You can't pick him and another. It's not Neapolitan JS around here. Oh, man. Yeah. I'm going to start calling myself Mr. Neapolitan JS. That's fine. But um, no, yeah, Wes, is, uh, Wes has been really, actually really helpful with like a lot of my business stuff too. But yeah, I called Wes a competitor because in some ways he is. But he is another JavaScript educator that I would highly recommend folks check out if you're interested in learning more. So there, there was one other thing that, that I was hoping to get around to that came up here. I'm not familiar with a way anymore. This was really easy a few years ago, but I don't know how to write isomorphic JavaScript that isn't TypeScript anymore. I, it sounds like everything 
either requires that the code already work in Node in the browser, but if you have like a dependency that's hard Node dependency, like must use Node, and then you must have a separate browser version because it's, for example, web crypto versus Node crypto, like this is one area where I think we've we've regressed and made the web a lot worse too. Has anybody else experienced that where you you have code that seems like it should be able to go together, but there's just like, there's not a way in JavaScript anymore to get the code to be able to bundleable bundleable from one NPM package? I'm, I'm not sure I understand the problem. So if you, if you want an NPM package that could be used in the browser and could also be used in Node, a few years ago, all you had to do is var uh, exports dot export name equal or or so var whatever equals exports dot whatever or require whatever that used to be the way that you could do it and it would work in node and the browser and you had like a couple extra bytes but now i don't think it's possible to do that anymore with all the webpack stuff and whatnot like i don't think any of the loaders can actually handle code that has a different whatever package that works written for node than a whatever package that's written for the browser. Does that make sense? Kind of. I mean, I think Chris pretty well uh, articulated, at least in my mind, that where you're going to run node and where you're going to run front-end code are two completely different ecosystems. I think in some ways you can get them to cross over and maybe the the right answer is some form of library that runs on the front-end that just passes it back to the node library on the back-end. But, no, no, no. What I mean is like where, like, for example, Node has buffer, and now all of JavaScript has array buffer. So you, you can just write array buffer and it'll work everywhere. But if you needed a feature of buffer itself, so for example, in the browser, you use A to B and B to A to go back and forth between base64. But in Node, you use buffer.from and buffer.toString. So this is like a very small example. If you have code, where in Node, you have to do it one way because the browser way is not available. And likewise, in the browser, you have to do it a different way. So the code is completely separate code for a single dependency, but all the rest of the code is the same. So like, you either have to include all of both the browser and Node code in the package, from what I can tell, or I don't know what to do. You have to have two separate packages on NPM, one that includes one dependency and the other that includes the other dependency. Yeah, on that, I I don't know. Ah, uh, never mind. It's, it's not something that I run into often because I am not using Node on the back end. I don't think I've experienced that too frequently myself. I do sometimes use Node on the back end, but usually it's relatively straightforward to use the same module. The, the biggest issue is just that I'm almost always, in those instances, I'm almost always working with a compiler of some sort anyway, so I'm usually working with Webpack and Babel and that kind of stuff. This sounds more like maybe just a personal failing of yours, AJ. Could be. Well, no, because I, 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 wrote, I wrote this library that other than that it needs a different dependency for crypto than it does in the browser versus Node, the code in JavaScript is simple. It works the same in both, but I'm having to publish different two different packages because I can't figure out how to make it make something like Webpack happy and sorry, whatever. I do. Dear listeners, can you, if you know the answer, can you please email AJ at AJ at solderjs.com so that he can move on with his life? That, that actually is not, that's not correct. But that, that was, I don't have the email up for that yet. But thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. Well, I'm just looking out for you, man. Nobody well, can sell solder anyway. So, dag nabbit. Solder. I need to change the branding again. All right, I got to push this to picks because I've, I've got to get ready to go on the DevEd podcast. AJ, since you were just talking, do you want to go first? Yeah, so first of all, just like delete that whole part because that was worthless. So let's just forget that that ever happened and <laughs> just cut to picks. Seriously, though, I'm sorry. That, was, that didn't help anybody. Um, so first pick, uh, this one was inspired by, I, I don't know, somebody. I'm going to blame it on Chris. It, it probably wasn't his fault, but I'm going to pick Weird Al. And specifically, I'm going to pick white and nerdy because it's just uh, an amazing artistic piece that exemplifies the excellence of uh, an artist in the genre of music. And if you're not familiar with it, you should be, as well as Amish Paradise and all the other top picks for Weird Al because he's just a great guy. I'm not sure Um, what it says about my parenting, but my kids all love Weird Al. (laughs) 
It's, it probably says that you are a very um, open-minded parent that allows exploration. The next pick, and this one's kind of like a null pick almost, because I'm picking something that, unfortunately, our listeners probably won't have the chance to experience without front-loading some cash. There's a board game called Quantum, which is unfortunately out of print, that a friend of mine happened to pick up at a a, a game rental store for a decent price, and he already loved it. So, so he he paid probably more than what you'd normally pay, but less than what it would have cost him on eBay. It's uh, it's really neat. You could actually probably recreate it on your own, and, and like print out your own board or something. But it's you've got some dice, and the dice represent ships. So you you roll dice at the beginning of the game to determine what ships you start out with, and the the number that you get, the higher it is, means the more your ship can move, and then it'll have some other special capabilities that are enumerated on the game sheet. But uh, the higher the number, the battle points are kind of inverse. So when you go to battle against another ship, the highest number of points loses. So it's your ship's number already plus whatever you roll. And But anyway, all the pieces on the on the board pretty much are dice and i think there's some other tokens as well and you just go around land on land in orbits and and do research on a planet and you get a token and when you get enough tokens for doing research then then you can end the game and i don't know it's sounds stupid when i explain it like that but it's actually a really fun game so i'm gonna i'm gonna pick it and then also i'm going to pick uh, the same thing that that Chuck told me about last week because I went and checked out this article and looked through it and found out that it was pretty pretty simple and I would agree with his assessment that even as someone with fairly low technical backend skill, you could probably read through the article in a reasonable amount of time, perhaps less than an hour, and accomplish what what it's setting out to accomplish, which is to use just your local Git client against any server that has SSH. And so instead of having a specific Git server, you're just pushing over SSH to a folder that is a Git folder on your remote server, say on DigitalOcean or LightSail or whatever. And uh, then if you want, you can add a deploy hook to do something like build the site or whatever. But if you just have simple static site and you don't mind the Git folder being exposed, you don't even need that. You just basically put this Git repository in a place where you have write access via SSH and you just push to it. And that's how simple static deployment can be. And I don't know why I didn't know this before, because like now that I've seen the article, it's like, well, duh, anybody that's ever used Git would know that. But it totally wasn't obvious to me for some reason. And I love it. I love it, love it, love it. So thanks, Chuck, for picking that. And it's the, the tutorials by DigitalOcean. And so I'm, I'm linking to that again. Yeah, I'll have to tell uh, Brian that you like the article. He's in charge of the content team for DigitalOcean. He's good. Uh, former panelists on Ruby Rogue. So Amy, what are your picks? So I've talked about it before. I'm sure a lot of engineers have read or heard about um, the whole deep work philosophy. But if you don't have time to read the book, this was a good blog post that I read, um, just a complete guide to deep work, how to master the number one job skill that will never be obsolete. I mean, most people would probably make fun of me. I think I've mentioned it before. I uh, I have a TV, but it's like super tiny. I don't have Netflix. I don't have cable. I don't listen to a lot of music. I just, I don't know. I just try to avoid as many distractions in life as possible. And maybe, um, you know, that's what works for me. Um, that's what this article kind of talks about. So that'll be my pick for this week. There you have it. Amy's the only person not watching Game of Thrones. No, I haven't seen a single episode. <laughs> Me either. I watched about 15 minutes, maybe, tops of the very first episode. And I, it's not the kind of stuff I want in my life. It's just not. Like, I watched about a season and a half. I, I actually literally have anxiety issues with lengthy <laughs> series. Uh, the, the commitment involved is like, oh, I'm going to watch this for 10 years and uh, for hours at a time is, I have a really hard time with it. I hear it's super good, so... My brother-in-law is on episode nine of season one, and he's like, it's starting to pick up. And I'm like, who devotes nine hours to a show they don't really yeah. like? Season one was a ton of setup. And then at the end of season one, that's when kind of the trigger point for the rest of the series happened. So if you can make it to the end of season one, you may keep watching. Yes. 
Maybe. Maybe. Chris, what are your picks? A couple for me this week. Um, the first, I mentioned it during the article, but the developer Bait and Switch by Alex Russell is, I think, a really, uh, really, really good read and really nicely articulates some of the stuff that we talked about during today's episode. Also, um, the uh, VanillaJSList.com, uh, the VanillaJSList, sorry, it's not like the Facebook, VanillaJSList.com as a website where I've started categorizing or cataloging organizations that use VanillaJS. So if you wanted to kind of dig into some of what they've done uh, and learn a little bit more, uh, maybe a great place to do that. Also, if you know of any sites or companies that were built with VanillaJS, let me know and I'll add them to the list. And then uh, last pick for me this week, if you wanted to hear me um, rant more about this sort of thing in person, I'm going to be speaking at Artifact Conference uh, this October in Austin, Texas, one of the best web conferences I've ever been to as an attendee. I'm really excited to speak there. And I would absolutely love if you can attend. Um, Feel free to come up and tell me how right or wrong I am after my talk. I would love to connect and talk. And those are my picks for the week. Nice. Christopher, what are your picks? I've got a couple. uh, And I swear, Chris, I came up with this one before I knew what the topic was for this particular uh, podcast. So I've been working extensively with Material, uh, Google's CSS design spec. Basically, it's their bootstrap, if you want to be simple about it. And I've specifically been working with Material UI, which is the React component version of that. uh, So... If you are working in React and you need to work with Material, I definitely recommend it. They're about to put out uh, version 4, which cleans up a lot of the, frankly, weird issues that the current version has. But in general, I've found it really easy to work with. It makes rapidly scaffolding out React components that actually look like something pretty great. So I'm advocating a framework within a framework on the show about whether or not we should stop using so many frameworks. And in addition to that, uh, a non-tech pick, um, I am absolutely in love with the uh, comic book series Monstrous by Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda. It's a fantasy, Asian-influenced, crazy, violent, beautifully drawn series. The third graphic novel collecting several issues came out uh, relatively recently. And the fourth one is due fairly soon as well. If you like intricate fantasy that keeps you guessing and uh, lots of, you know, sword battles and profanity, then it's definitely right up your alley. Nice. I'm going to jump in here, I guess, with a couple of picks. So the first one, AJ was talking about a board game. I should just start picking board games. I I have a ton of them that I love to play. But he was talking about a space rocket-based board game. And one of my favorites that is a space-themed board game is called Tiny Epic Galaxies. And essentially what you do is you send your rockets to orbit planets. And then once you've orbited the planet, then you can use the abilities that come from the planet. And then, you know, you're trying to get more ships and more, you know, you roll the dice. And anyway, it's, it's a super fun game. And uh, yeah, it's cards and dice. And uh, yeah, lots and lots of fun. So I'm going to pick that one. And then another one that I'm going to pick, I inadvertently... <laughs> And so I'm just going to talk about it here because I may as well. I inadvertently announced something that I'd kind of been thinking about but hadn't fully committed to. So now that I've talked about it, I think I'm going to fully commit to. I've been talking to a lot of people as I wrote my book on uh, how, to find a, how to find your dream job. In fact, I actually retitled it to finding your dream developer job. And a lot of them, I'm telling them, hey, go get involved in a users group in your area. And what people tend to come back with is either it's on a night or at a time that I can't go, or I have some family commitment that makes it hard for me to go. You know, they have somebody that they're a caregiver for or something like that, and they just can't go and things like that. And at the same time, I had a whole bunch of people come back to me and, and say, Hey, you need to start doing the remote conferences again, you know, again, so people can just watch it from home or wherever. Right. And so I'm, I'm working on some things around that. The users group, I've decided I'm going to pull together kind of an online users group and I'll just find people from the community to come and speak, which is nice because then I can, I can get people from anywhere, right? And uh, afterward, I want to do a sort of roundtable so people can, you know, rotate in and off the call and, you know, we can kind of get some video and audio and hear them talk and get to know people a bit and, you know, set up a Slack room and a forum. 
And so I, I've decided to call this Everywhere JS, just because you know here in Utah we have Utah JS, and um, you know I see a bunch of other uh, users groups kind of named the same way. But since this one's online, it's kind of everywhere. So Everywhere JS. Do I'm doing the same thing for Ruby, by the way. Right now, I just have something set up for a waitlist. So if you go to everywherejs.com, I will have it up by the time this episode goes live, then you can actually just jump in and uh, join the waitlist for that. And um, yeah, uh, as soon as I have enough people involved, then we'll get it launched and, and start bringing in speakers and stuff like that. I am going to charge for it. Um, mostly, though, it, it's something that I want to do for the community. So I'm, I'm not going to charge much. But I feel like people get committed when they put money down. And so that's part of the reason. And the other reason is, is then when we bring in speakers that I can send them something really nice for coming and talking to us. So anyway, that's, that's kind of what I've been working on there. So I've uh, been thinking about that. And I will also probably have the book out on Amazon and things where you can buy it um, now that I have finished editing it. And uh, yeah, so anyway, you'll be able to find all this stuff actually at keepcurrentacademy.com. It's still a little bit of a work in progress. So if it, if it seems like there's stuff there that shouldn't be there, I am working on it. But anyway, uh, that, that's where I'm at. So I guess uh, that's all we got. So we'll go ahead and wrap up. Uh, hey, to our panel. Baby O'Neill is scheduled for Thursday. What? Just found this out. Oh, congrats. Nice. Thanks. Nice. So you just found out you're having a baby and it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, wife just got back from the doctor. Sorry, I ruined the outro there. I didn't mean to do that. I thought no, it felt good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving it in. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.